Welcome to Fringe Element here on the 440 Sports Network. My name is Braden Gall. Special Georgia Bulldogs edition, two-time defending national championship, potential three-peat edition of the pod. And I am joined by Stephen Lassen. Stephen, how are you, sir? I'm doing great, Braden. Always good to talk to you. Spring practice in the SEC about wrapped up. Uh, looking forward to talking season, I guess, uh, around the SEC and college football. So we are going to talk with Connor Riley of Dog Nation, who is going to give us all the nuts and bolts of the roster for Georgia itself, comparing this roster to last year's roster. What did we learn in the spring? The quarterback battle, the defensive front, the secondary, the receivers. He's going to talk all through the roster. Then we are going to speak with Chip Towers of the AJC, who is a Georgia alum who's been covering this team on and off for basically four decades to give us some historical perspective on how Georgia has been able to do this, the alignment in the organization, um, how good this job really is, the fan base, Kirby Smart, the culture, what's going on with the program, and have sort of a big picture look at Georgia. You, Stephen Lassen, are here because you work at Athlon Sports and you put together uh, a preseason top 25. You cover the entire country and you are here to tell the fine folks in the SEC who has a chance to actually beat Georgia in 2023, both in the division on the schedule, in the conference, or basically anywhere in America. It's going to require us to, I think, stretch a little bit on that front, Braden. As you know, Georgia, <laughs> of course, the two-time champion, uh, very much the front runner, of course, for, for number three. But we'll get into that. Um, I, I think it is an interesting year across college football, just putting together the rankings, you know, looking at some of these conferences. I think some of the middle of conferences are going to be really competitive. I think some of the top, uh, obviously, for conference championships will be uh, entertaining. But I think in the SEC, I think it's pretty cut and dry uh, what everyone expects. But you just you just an- you just ruined the whole podcast. No, no. Uh, I, I, I- <laughs> later on in the later on, we're going to give you a list of teams that could beat Georgia. We are we are going to make the case. Because, again, I think we do this in college football all the time, Stephen, and you and I experience this with our preseason top 25 every year. We have to make assumptions about teams. It's assumptions about everything, about coaching staffs, about turnover, about rosters, about quarterbacks, about schedules. We have to make assumptions. It's part of the beauty of college football in the offseason. So later on, we are going to make the case as to why this might not be the first ever three-peat in modern college football history. We'll tell you exactly who could beat them on their schedule, who could beat them in the SEC, and who could beat them nationally. But you're going to hear from Connor Riley and Chip Towers first. But before we do that, Stephen, I want to ask you a question. And rate, review, subscribe, check out the YouTube page, all that great stuff. Pre-order your magazines, athlonsports.com. You can get the NFL Draft Magazine still this week. Right now, of course, on newsstands. Um, let me ask you this. So there was one really quick bit, bit of news in the SEC, and that was this... Pat Forty wrote this story, I guess, talking about maybe the SEC like taking away wins and losses for storming the field. They're making it very, very serious. I, I, I just wanted to get your opinion on this because I understand the safety issue around court storming or field storming, but it's also like the most memorable thing of the entire 2022 season was Neyland Stadium covered in fans. Now, certainly there was a weird incident in that game, but like in that moment, what what were your thoughts when you saw the story about hey we're going to take away we're going to take away a you're going to forfeit a win potentially if you if you if your people run onto the field what were your thoughts 
It seems crazy to me. I think, like you said, I mean, one of the one of the, the biggest like storylines of the season or most like things that I remember was Tennessee beating Alabama and then the ensuing uh, fans on the field, the celebration, putting the goalpost in the river, all the scenes that we saw from Knoxville and around the stadium after that. Uh, yeah, that's kind of what college football is all about, right? It's it's those Saturday experiences, the things that we saw in that moment. I certainly think to your point, the safety of both teams, all the fans, all the coaches and personnel, getting them off the field, finding ways to alleviate some of the situations that we've seen. We also saw Michigan and Michigan State get into a fight in the tunnel at the end of the game. So I think there are some post-game uh, operational issues that need to be ironed out in college football across the board. But as far as taking away, uh, you know, games or, or wins or anything, that, that is just crazy to me because this is yeah. one of the, the things that make uh, college football special. We just need to find a way to make it safer so that no one gets hurt in this process. Yeah, and I know they like more police doesn't feel like the right answer. Like the, the only person that stops a bad person with a goalpost is a good person with a goalpost, Stephen. Um, <laughs> no, I don't, I don't understand how you stop it from happening. If you were to, but a win seems so taking away a, a forfeiting outcomes of games seems extraordinarily punitive. Like it, it just, it seems absurd. And and again, I'm with you. Like we all understand the the risks that are involved, but the most memorable visual moment of the 2022 college football season was Neyland Stadium. That's it. Like in every conference, at any moment, and it's not a surprise, of course, that Greg Byrne, the athletic director for Alabama, and Mitch Barnhart, the athletic director for Kentucky basketball are the two guys that are sort of spearheading this. I know there's some other people involved as well, uh, but what do those two have in common? They are the biggest, baddest dog in their sport. No pun intended, Georgia fans who are listening to this. Um, so I, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't know what the I don't solution know what you can, is. I don't know what you can do about it. That's the right. problem. Like, I think you can increase the fine for some of the teams that have these post-game things, but, but that's not going to stop the fans from sitting in the stadium from storming the the field or the court i mean they're, they're not gonna be the ones paying the fine so i don't know what you can do in this instance i think certainly some things like that will maybe you can increase your stadium security around but you when you're in a situation like we saw at tennessee you can't stop thousands of fans no. uh from coming out of the field there's just no way and again putting more like and I don't mean this in a bad way to disparage cops because I love cops. Cops, most cops are great, but like you, you can't just put a bunch more people, it, like while there's drunk kids pouring over the set. Like that's not going to end end well either. So uh, I'm with you. I don't know what the solution is, but I, it seems it seems ridiculous to start taking wins and losses away. Uh, the money though, like you you talk about, like if they just jacked it up to instead of a hundred grand, it's five hundred grand. Let's just start making up numbers, like. And I, I I say this as an alumni who doesn't exactly like the fact that Danny White did this, the athletic director at Tennessee. He just asked people to pay for the goalpost and like they donated money. This is a two hundred million dollar athletic department. They could have paid one hundred and fifty grand for some goalposts and for the for the fee from the from the conference. And instead, he like crowdsourced donations and everyone was willing to do it because they came off the high of beating Alabama. Uh, I don't like any of that, <laughs> but but. Uh, I don't know, million bucks. Maybe that starts to limit it to just the most important games. I do think in basketball, there's way too much court storming. Like I saw one in the NIT a couple years ago, and I'm like, no, 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 no. What are we doing? Like, stop, stop storming the court in in NIT. Like, there's all kinds of rules. Like, you shouldn't storm the field if you're favored to win the game. You shouldn't storm the field if you've won a national title in the last ten years. There's all kinds of rules to this stuff. Tennessee against Bama after 15 years. I, I don't know. It, you you got to let you got to let people have fun at some point. So, OK, 
I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. All right. So you're going to hear from Connor Riley from Dog Nation. You're going to hear from Chip Towers. Uh, you're going to hear about the roster, the depth chart for Georgia. You're going to hear about the big picture problems and or successes of the program moving forward. Some historical context. You're going to hear two really great interviews with two different perspectives about Georgia football. And then, Stephen, you and I are going to try to make the case against Georgia. We're going to tell you where they're going to be ranked in our preseason magazine. And we're going to tell you who could beat them head to head on their schedule in the SEC or in the college football playoff. We're going to do that all here on the show today. So without any more conversation, here was my interview with Dog Nation's Connor Riley. Connor, welcome to the show, man. Good to have you, bud. Yeah, thanks, man. It's a real treat to be here. So I guess my first question is, and I'm not a huge, what did we learn in spring practice guy, but... With that in mind, I will say, is there anything at all about this Georgia Bulldogs football team that you maybe didn't think at the start of practice or that has changed throughout the course of practice now that it's all wrapped up? I think there are two things, and they sort of tie into each other. One, I think this wide receiver room that Georgia has is going to be really good this year. Obviously, you know, last year it was tight ends with Brock Bowers and Darnell Washington. Washington moving on, there was some question about what this offense was going to look like. They're six, seven deep at this position with guys who can make plays in a way they really haven't had since Kirby Smart took over as the head coach. And I think that's going to make a life a lot easier for Carson Beck, who had a lot of pressure on him this spring, you know, was the believed favorite. And he came out in G-Day and answered any and all questions that I had. I thought he looked like a starting quarterback should. Obviously, they're going to take this competition into the fall. But I expect first game of the season, Carson Beck to be the guy, especially with what he showed on G-Day, the poise, the ability to spread the ball around, to get it to all levels of the field. I think he looked like a guy who it's his fourth year in college and it's his fourth year in a similar system to what Mike Bobo is running compared to Todd Munkin. And he looked like a guy that was ready for the moment. And I was really impressed with how he played on spring day. Uh, again, everything we're talking about is about the fall in the middle of the spring. So everything's got a, an asterisk and a caveat. But you, I know you wrote about this, of course, about the offensive line maybe being the best position group on the team. You sort of have that storyline, obviously a guy who could go in the first round and Broderick Jones. And then you've also got the quarterback battle. You've also got a new coordinator. And now you've got maybe the best weapons that a Georgia quarterback has had in a long time. How does it all fit together right now? Again, I know we're four months out, but how does it all fit together in, in Kirby's mind? Are we on a trajectory the way Todd Munkin had the offense going? Is it back a different direction or is it just, is, is it something new direction we don't know about yet? So I would probably say new direction we don't know about yet. You know, schematically, this offense isn't going to change all that much from what we saw with Todd Munkin in terms of the things that they want to do. I think the big difference this year, it's just it's a little different personnel. Darnell Washington is such a unique player in the sense that there just aren't six foot seven, 280 pound <laughs> tight ends running around out there who can block like an offensive lineman and catch like a tight end. And so while Georgia does have great tight end depth, along with Brock Bowers, the best tight end in the country, it's not going to look the same offense in terms of the running two tight end sets all that often. They're going to lead more three, sometimes even four wide receiver sets. But I think when you factor in the offensive line that they bring back, where they bring back both starting guards, the starting center, Cedric Van Pran, who's probably the best center in the country. And then, yes, you do have questions at those tackle positions, but Amarius Mims is just Broderick Jones 2.0, in my opinion. And then you have a guy in Ernest Green who's battling to be that starting left tackle who's a top 50 overall recruit. When you recruit as well as Georgia has in recent years, especially along the offensive line, you do get tend to get the benefit of the doubt just because the talent you already know is so baked in and so already there. 
All right. Well, you mentioned Beck feeling like the clear guy. I, I would have said this in January or February or March. I would have said I'd be shocked if Carson Beck wasn't the starter in game one. It feels like nothing has really changed, although we know uh, that Brock Vandegrift has gained weight and he's, you know, he's brings a different element to the table from an athleticism standpoint. He's obviously going to get some playing time in the first couple of games because they're going to be blowouts. He's going to get reps. Uh, who Who is the starting quarterback for the Tennessee game in November? I'll say Carson Beck just because it's hard to predict injuries, but I just, you know, I don't want to overstate this enough. Yes, it was spring practice, but there was real pressure on Carson to come out and perform and come out and show that he was the guy. And he aced that test, in my opinion. I know he's never been on the road. He's going to have to go to Auburn. He's going to have that big test at Neyland at the end of the season. Carson Beck is such a unique quarterback within the confines of college football of the top 50 quarterbacks in the 2020 class. He is the only one who has not either started a game or elected to transfer elsewhere. And it makes him such a unique player. He's obviously a mature guy, a guy that's been in the system, knows, I think, the skill set of the guys around him. And he's eager to prove that. And I don't think he's going to be too overwhelmed. And at the end of the day, I think it helps where he can lean on a great offensive line, really good ride receivers, and a defense that might be as good as any in the country. You know, I don't know if it's going to look like what Stetson Bennett did in 2022. It may look at times a little bit more like the 2021 Georgia offense especially early on. But when they go to Neyland at the end of the year, their their last SEC game, I expect that offense to be, you know, operating at its maximum ability and knowing that they're going to have to go in there and score some points against the Tennessee team. And that while they haven't necessarily proven against Georgia, shows on any given Saturday they can put up 40 points. I suppose this is a good time to reiterate that the 2021 Georgia offense was top five in America and won a national championship. Just want to point that out. Um, so it's it's funny, like, do you expect, first of all, do you, this, is a, this will be the old two-parter here. Um, do you expect one of the, the third, Gunner Stockton essentially to transfer? Do you think he sticks around? And here's the other question, and I don't know if I could ask this of any other team in America. Does it matter who's the starting quarterback at, at any point during the regular season? I'm not sure if it does. Is it the SEC championship game? Is it that Tennessee game? Is it a playoff game? Where is it that like the quarterback play is going to be the reason Georgia wins or loses a game? To answer your first question, I don't think Gunnar Stockton is going to transfer. I expect Georgia to go through the season with three scholarship quarterbacks. I think they feel good about that. As far as when it matters, again, I, I think this team is so deep. And, and Georgia, especially in the last two years, well, yes, Josh Heupel has done great things at Tennessee and gotten that program to a level. I'll be honest, I don't think a lot of people expected it to get to coming out of the rummage of the Jeremy Pruitt area. I just haven't seen enough from Tennessee to where I believe that, especially on the offensive side of the ball, they can really push Georgia in a way to make that quarterback position matter. You know, I'll say the SEC championship <laughs> game because I, I do think LSU has some players there and Alabama is still Alabama until fully proven otherwise. But to your larger point, again, I think there's so much talent here. I don't know how much it really matters. I don't know if this defense is as good as the 2021 one. And I don't know if this offense is good as the 2022 one. But I think there's a chance this 2023 team is the most balanced of the three that two, the first two have won national titles. And so, again, <laughs> there's so much talent there that, yes, while you have an unproven guy in Carson Beck, I could see a world where they don't ask him to do a ton. And they're still, you know, 12 and 0 entering the SEC championship game and fair or, or not. We still may not know a lot about what he can do against a capable opponent. Oh, super. That's just super news for everybody else in the SEC. Uh, you mentioned the defense, though, and I've talked to a few people down there that say this group could be not not it's sort of in between right like we know 2021 was historically epically great 40 50 years great last year still probably the best defense in america 
Uh, but we know all the talent that left in the draft two years ago. They're going to lose a few more guys in the draft this year. Um, we know the five stars are churning. Just can you give us a sense of like where this roster is on that side? And again, I understand we're talking about probably the best defense in America for three straight years. But just where does it rank relative to the last two seasons? Yeah, so I, I would probably right now, especially projecting forward again, it's April, what, 25th? Projecting forward, it, it's in between the two. I don't know if it's got the players who will reach that high-end ceiling that that 2021 team had where, you know, Jordan Davis was arguably the best interior defensive lineman in America. N'Kobe Dean won the Buckets Award that year. Uh, you had Lewis Seen, who was a first-round safety. Chris Smith, who, was, who went on to be an All-American. I don't know if it's got that ceiling. They're going to need sophomores like Malachi Starks, five-star player, Michael Williams, five-star player, to really make a significant leap that we don't usually see from Georgia defensive players. That's usually like a year or year four thing. But there's still enough raw talent there. You know, Kirby Smart's asked, you know, I don't know if we have the true game record that we have on the defensive line in past years, like, say, Jalen Carter. But they're so deep there. They bring back both starting linebackers in Shmael Munden and Jamon Dumas-Johnson, who could both be All-Americans. They do have some losses to replace in the secondary, but at the same point in time, they feel really good about what they have in a corner in Kamari Lasseter and then Javon Bullard, who was the defensive MVP in both college football playoff games. So I think the question is, can these guys reach that ceiling? It's going to take some of the younger guys making really significant leaps. But as far as you point out, this is still probably the most talented defense top to bottom in America. And they've got guys that I think two, three years from now could be every bit as good. You mentioned Jalen Carter. I will ask you about that in just a second. Um, is attacking this defense down the field sort of the way Missouri did, the way Bryce Young did two years ago, the way C.J. Stroud did, like, is that still going to be the only thing that sort of keeps Kirby smart up at night? Is like can't a team with great receivers and good good quarterback play can attack this defense down the field? Is that still the only thing that, that he's concerned about? Yeah, and I think if you look at that Tennessee game, the, the speci specifically that last year where – they dared Hendon Hooker to hit those deep shots. They say, hey, we're not going to give you anything underneath. If you're going to try and beat us, you're going to have to beat us deep. Because one, Georgia's finished, I think, second in 2021 in rush defense. They finished first last year. You just don't run the ball on Georgia football anymore. And so you're going to need the right combination of quarterback play and wide receivers to beat them deep. Bryce Young did it in 2021. C.J. Stroud nearly did it in 2022. But beyond that, if you don't have the wide receivers that can push Georgia down the field, and they are still beatable in that area, even with guys like Keely Ringo and Kamari Lasseter, you saw last season that they were susceptible, susceptible back there. I think you're right in pointing out, if you don't have the wide receiver and quarterback play where, where a guy can not only you know make those throws downfield, but buy some time with his feet and do the things that are necessary to, to extend some plays and make Georgia cover for a little bit longer, that's still, in my opinion, the best way to go about beating this Georgia team. Uh, Jalen Carter, is there a way to explain his career arc or at least maybe even the offseason arc? I mean, I know we all kind of know the, the backstory and what's going on and everybody knows the details. But like, it seems like he's never really had a problem at Georgia from a locker room standpoint. Um, he certainly has had some weird moments here leading up to the draft. Uh, there's been a lot of other Georgia players who have problem with vehicles at two in the morning. I covered Isaiah Wilson. I covered Isaiah Wilson here for the Titans who had multiple incidents after graduation. Is there a way to just like, what, what do we, what should people know about the Jalen Carter situation that maybe they don't? Yeah. So it's worth keeping in mind, like he's 21 years old and 21 year olds make a lot of mistakes and, no. he, is, and he has certainly made his fair share of them this off season. 
I think what you get from a, a football sense, his football character, what he brings to that locker room, what he does. I know there have been some scouts out there that have questioned, you know, what he does down to down. That's every defensive lineman that has ever played the position. You can question, you know, are they running 100% all the time? I've seen a lot of great defensive players at Georgia. I don't think I've seen one more dominant than him. And the stretch that he had, mind you, coming off an injury where he didn't have to come back and play this season – from the Florida game through the LSU game, sort of the last six games of the regular season, I don't think I've seen a more dominant defensive player over a stretch than what Jalen Carter did there. So from a pure football standpoint, yes, there are character flags that I think are at this point with the offseason that he has had, with the draft cycle that he has had. You mentioned the arrest. He showed up overweight to his pro day and did not perform very well there. While those questions are, I think, justified, I think once you get him in the program, once you get him in your locker room and just get him playing football, if you do enough to make sure that he grows as a person, I think you're potentially getting the best player in the draft and you're going to get him, say, at five, six, seven, eight, nine, rather than at the top spot yeah. there. Um, 11 and a half regular season wins. You got uh, every penny you own. You, you, is, there, is the Auburn game, the Tennessee game? I know there's a lot of decent teams on the schedule, not a lot of great ones. Uh, are you going over? You going under? I like to live dangerously. I'll take the over. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, the Auburn game is going to be interesting because that's Carson. That'll be Carson Beck, in my opinion's first true road test. And, and you know, Hugh Freeze is a capable coach. That I just don't think Auburn has the talent. Tennessee, we'll see how they improve over the course of the season. I think it helps them that they get them at the end of November rather than say in early October. And so, yes, you know, there are, there's, they get Ole Miss at home, you know, Florida, while that program is in trouble, in my opinion, it's always a weird game down there in Jacksonville, but as hard as it is, as it is to believe, you know, from a 10,000 foot view, you probably think maybe Georgia gets tripped up. They struggled against Missouri last year, but then when you start looking at these games on an individual basis, I just find it hard to believe that Georgia is going to fall to a team when they just, especially against these teams they play in the regular season, have such a wide talent margin that it does give them a, a, some room for error. And I think that's going to show up at times during the season, but I expect them to enter the SEC championship game with a 12 and 0 record. I, I, I don't disagree. Um, I guess we might as well play the season, I suppose. Uh, Connor, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us, man. We do appreciate it. Thank you. No problem. Thanks for having me on. That was Connor Riley of Dog Nation. We really appreciate his time there. Again, Stephen, you and I are going to talk about this in a little bit, but the receiving core, probably the best part of this team, a huge difference there uh, for the Georgia Bulldogs in 2023. Could be different on how they approach the offense. That is for sure. All right, so that's your depth chart update. That's your spring practice update. Now let's talk big picture about the entire Georgia program, the history of this program, the culture, Kirby Smart, and the future. Uh, here was our conversation with Chip Towers from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Chip, welcome to the show, man. How are you, sir? Hey, fantastic. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Um, so I, I guess I'll ask one depth chart slash uh, spring practice question. That is, did you learn anything at all about this team that you didn't know through the course of practice over the last month and a half? Well, you know, uh, you think you know, uh, and kind of the way Kirby operates his program, there's not a ton of access to form your own opinion. So <laughs> I, I would say there was a lot of validation, um, you know, for, of, of things I'd heard, you know, that Carson Beck has looked well, uh, looked in charge. And, I, you know, I came away from G-Day uh, not thinking there was a, that, uh, that anything but that was the truth. 
Um, you, you know, there were some interesting other things. Uh, Javon Bullard, I think, moving to safety and Tyke Smith take it over at the star position um, is a significant move and kind of telling uh, uh, whether it sticks. We'll see. And, um, you know, I, I really like George's offense uh, a lot, regardless of who's um, going to be the quarterback. So those were kind of I wouldn't call them revelations. I would call them more validations. So let's start with the coordinator, Mike Bobo, of course, I think sort of had this, I don't want to say misunderstood performance as the coordinator under Mark Rick, but one of the best offenses in America for like the last three or four years he was there. Sometimes a punching bag for Georgia fans. Where, like, first of all, what do we think is different about a Mike Bobo offense than a Todd Munkin offense? And clearly the trajectory that Todd Munkin was on in terms of the development of the offense. Um, but where are fans at with Mike Bobo? Are they, they just they trust Kirby because of two two rings in a row, or is there any any concern at all? Or is it what, what's what's the relationship with Mike Bobo from the fans? Well, there's definitely an in Kirby we trust uh, sort of attitude going on uh, in general. But you know, guys like me that have been around for a long time, you know, sort of get it with Mike Bobo. I mean. You know, the criticism he got while he was at Georgia was, really wasn't justified. Most of it was, um, you know, wrapped up in that one play with Todd Gurley that, uh, you know, against South Carolina on the road in 2014, I think it was. And, uh, you know, the, his offenses were uh, some of the most prolific in Georgia history and remained that way um, the last several years. And, you know, he's very well respected. But the real interesting thing is going to be, you know, the personnel. The personnel is different. And Mike Bobo was was here with Todd Munkin last year. Um, he saw everything that he did, and he could duplicate that at, to, you know, to the letter if he wanted to. But Georgia's personnel is going to be a little bit different this year. You know, their running back position, I don't want to say it's shaky, but they've had a hard time staying healthy. I'm not sure it's as diversified as it was last year with Kenny McIntosh. Um, is certainly not as was with Kenny McIntosh. And then I think this is a little bit more wide receiver oriented. I mean, Darnell Washington is a, everybody knows a certifiable freak of nature. And when you got him and Brock Bowers, that's different than having him and Oscar Delp. Oscar Delp, Brock Bowers and Oscar Delp are, are twins, you know, really uh, physically. So you don't do the same thing with uh, with those two guys. I think the strength of Georgia's team is in their wide receiver core. So, you know, is it going to be because of Mike Bobo that Georgia maybe throws the ball around more this year? Or is it going to be because of that personnel where you got, I think it's four of the top 17 receivers when you count Ra Ra Thomas and Dominic Lovett, add them to, you know, Brock Bowers and Lad McConkey and Marcus Rosamie Jack Sang and all these other guys that you had here. I mean, I think that's going to be the strength of the team. So I think it's not really going to be a Mike Bobo thing as much as it's going to be a personnel thing. Kirby came into SEC Media Days last year with a pretty distinct message of, no, we're we're still the hunter. We're, we're not going to be complacent. It's a new team. All those players were drafted, of course, and it kind of was a new team. But basically, some of the leaders were the same. Um, do you get a sense that Kirby Smart has evolved or changed at all, or is it just every day needs to be exactly the same a la Nick Saban? Well, let me say this. You know, I, I think this gets overlooked a little bit, but just think about if there wasn't second and 26, right? I mean, that was a freakish play, a great play, uh, but we could be talking about a whole different, you know, 
animal when you talk about Georgia. And I give Kirby credit for that because you remember after that game was over, he said, hey, we're not going anywhere. You know, we're going to be back. And he was right because and that's because of the confidence that he had in his internal system, which is based, you know, largely on what they were doing at uh, Alabama under Nick Saban. But also, you know, Kirby was a big part of that as well. I mean, a central cog in everything that Nick Saban had going on. And he had some ideas and tweaks as well. And so I thought the most notable quote that uh, we got from Kirby post G day, he was like, we're built to sustain. And his point is, you know, there's not going to be this fall off. I mean, you look at it last year, you had 15 NFL picks this year. You're going to have double figures again, uh, maybe four first rounders yet there's not that, you know, dramatic drop-off. They're not expecting that dramatic drop-off. And when you start to break down this offense and defense and you go, yeah, they ought to be okay there. Yeah, they ought to be okay there. So, um, yeah, I, you know, I think he's made quite a statement with this program, and I don't see him, um, you know, making a hard right or left turn anytime soon. What is it about the Georgia program? And this may go to the, I don't know, all the way up to the state, legislator I, I don't know if this is just the academic the academic side of it if it's the athletic director if it's boosters I don't know what it is but what is it about this program because I think you could argue Georgia's the best job for a coach in America some people would say Ohio State maybe Alabama maybe USC there's a few others that you could throw in there but it feels like there, there's it's a it, there's more alignment the fans aren't as sort of like insane I don't mean like passionate because they're clearly passionate but they're not as like nutso as some of the other fan bases go in terms of college football what what is it about this program that has allowed them to stay aligned and sort of be in a position to capitalize on a guy like Kirby Smart does that does that make sense yeah well um you know Nick Saban said years ago there's been other coaches that have said it that uh that you know Georgia was a sleeping giant and I think uh what Kirby Kirby was just able to lasso all that and kind of get it concentrated and moving in the same direction I mean I you know, I I didn't mean for this interview. I don't know if you meant for this interview to be this, but you know, I'm just verbalizing what I see. And um, I mean, look, there's there's faults for Kirby Smart, and there's faults with this Georgia program right now. But his organizational skills, uh, and I'm talking about that on a multi-dimensional level. I mean, there's practice organization, there's development organization, there's recruiting. Right? There's the Georgia's recruiting budget has gone from you know top ten to number one every year. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a very concentrated system that they're using to go out and find players, but it's based on a home base. That's the state of Georgia. And so we, you get in this argument a lot of time, talk about how many, uh, division one players does the state of California, state of Texas and state of Florida produce as opposed to Georgia, Georgia is right up there, you know, probably just behind those in terms of total population, but the difference is the level of coaching in the state of Georgia and around Metro Atlanta and South Georgia. So basically what you've got is a situation is you pluck in the best of the best out of the state. These guys grow up wanting to go here. And now what he's doing, he's flying coast to coast. You know, you get Darnell Washington out of Las Vegas. You get Keely Ringo out of Tacoma, Washington. You get Brock Bowers out of Napa, California. Uh, you know, pluck, 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 pluck. And then you've got your baseline. So, you know, there's there's not a lot of fluctuation there. Things are staying very, very level. And then at the moment between the transfer portal 
uh, in development, he's been able to convince these guys, no, your best option is to stay here. No, you're not playing right now, but you need to not get in the portal. And in a year or two, we'll have you getting your name called yeah. in the first round in the NFL draft. That's working for him right now. Do, do you think the fans have been trained to be a little bit more patient? Like Auburn fans are, are famously impatient. Tennessee fans famously impatient. LSU fans famously impatient. Alabama fans, while they are completely bonkers, feel like when they put the person in charge, they trust, they let them do their job, right? Like they kind of back yeah. away. Do you, do you think Georgia is sort of like, I don't know, like the fans, the boosters, they know their place enough to sort of let the people do their job. And that is why the, the patience pays off. Is that, does that make sense? Again, does that make sense? Well, it, you know, they're fans, they're fanatics, they're unreasonable as anybody else. But I, I mean, <laughs> I think there's certainly a feeling I mean, I know, again, being an alum and being around for a long time and kind of knowing the story of 1980 and how long it took to re to 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 get back to the top of the mountain and all that. I, I feel like Georgia fans kind of feel like they're playing with house money right now. You know, I mean, it's sort of, you know, we went back to back, uh, you, you know, you, you know, you're going to be. I mean, the schedule is what it is this year. I mean, it really <laughs> have to be a train wreck for things to go awry this year. I mean, you should be in the hunt. Again, so I, I just I, I think there's a little bit of calm, uh, you know, about that. But listen, it, it, all it'll take is a you know a couple of losses, <laughs> you know, one, one to Tennessee and, and one to somebody you're not supposed to lose to, and they'll be lathered up again. Oh, life in the SEC, baby. Um, all right, you mentioned some of the quote unquote issues. Um, I, I think this is a fairly normal thing that happens to programs that win at this level. You, you get a spotlight that's brighter. You get more ink on stories that normally you wouldn't get. Um, players are not told no as often when you get to this level. Um, I don't think it's anything that any one particular coach has created. I think that's a, a sort of a tired narrative, but it is the coach's job to fix it. So what is, what is the next step for Kirby in terms of managing all of the stuff that's going on, the noise, the discipline problems, again, the car thing is just bizarre to me. Um, yeah. it, like, I don't think it's Kirby's fault, but isn't it Kirby's job to fix it? Yeah, no, it absolutely is. And, you know, quite frankly, I don't think we've heard of enough from him about it. You know, I mean, I mean, like when, when pushes come to shove, uh, you know, he, he, uh, you know, I think I asked him in, in one of the first press conferences back after the uh, double fatality tra tragedy, uh, you know, is, is there does there need to be some changes? No, no, there's nothing needs to be changed. Now, I don't believe that's really what's happening behind the scenes. I think there's a a lot of changes and and listen we just there was just news yesterday that the uh uh parents of Devin Willick who passed away in that uh crash um is filing a lawsuit uh, for you know against the University of Georgia and against the uh driver so there were some breakdowns in process on all that and then switching back around this is not unique to Georgia but you know NIL is changing everything so you know what? I don't know why this has fallen on Georgia and how it compares to other programs, but these guys have cars, fast cars, you know. And um, uh, you know, in the case of Jalen Carter, I, I don't think enough is made. You know, he's driving a Jeep Cherokee Trackhawk with a uh, seven thousand horsepower engine in it. You know, that's a hundred thousand dollar vehicle that he got through an NIL arrangement, you know. Well, what's a, somebody that's 18 to 20 years old going to do with that kind of power under their feet? Are they just going to cruise around, you know, under the speed limit? No, they're going to see how fast that thing goes. And, um, you know, this is going on everywhere. Listen, Southern Cal, they just plucked one of Georgia's 
uh, great players. Uh, Dion over there, uh, you know, they're, they're all these uh, transfers that are coming in with these huge arrangements. There's, there's, this is a real trimmer going on right now. And, um, you know, the college football has to get a handle on it. I don't know how you do that. You know, the world is the world and yeah. um, the world does things to people. And, you know, it's affected Georgia right now. And they're going to have to put some systems in place um, that sort of prevent further tragedies like this. I think tremor is a very good word for what is taking place, considering uh, what could be coming after the tremor. Um, all right, last one. I'll let you go, Chip. First of all, happy birthday, my man. Uh, Thank and, you. Appreciate it. And I'll let you go. Just what what is the case against Georgia, like not being number one or not going 12 and 0? Like, is there a case like the secondary is not as good? You can still attack them down the field. The quarterback doesn't develop. Like, what is the actual art? I don't I can't find one. So please help me find an argument why Georgia should not be number one heading into the season. Well, you know, if when you verbalize it, it sounds it sounds less ideal, right? So you're making a change at quarterback, both your tackles. Uh, you lose uh, a lot of talent on the defensive line again. You know, Jalen Carter, uh, uh, an, an All-American, um, your outside linebacker, Nolan Smith, is going to go uh, in the first round. It looks like uh, you lose two guys out of your secondary. I mean, there's there's a lot of loss, but, I, you know, uh, you know, so maybe some of these guys don't come through. And, I, you know, Georgia's been pretty fortunate on the injury front. Um, last year, now, you lost Nolan Smith in the middle of the year. year before that, you lost George Pickens, so these aren't small things. But Georgia really hasn't had a devastating run of injuries that um, really impacted them. So I, I would say, you know, you could you could get some key guys hurt and be in some trouble. But otherwise, you know, they, they're really going to have to spit the bit to not uh, get where they're supposed to be this year. And and maybe one of those eight and four teams is way better than we think on the schedule, because there's a lot of eight and four teams on that schedule. Not not a lot yeah. of 11 and one teams, but a lot of eight and four teams. Chip, thank you so much, man. We do appreciate it. Much appreciated. All right. You got it. Take care. That was Chip Towers of the AJC giving us a, you know, uh, listen, Stephen, he, he's pretty open there. There are some problems with, with Georgia, but, uh, and I thought it was really interesting mentioning NIL being a huge factor in delivering $100,000 hot rods to, to, to kids now. And that part of the being part of the problem for Georgia and other programs is that, you know, when you start giving Lamborghinis to kids, like they're not going to drive 35 <laughs> when they have Lamborghinis. <laughs> um, just hopefully they haven't been drinking and it's not after 2 a.m. And otherwise it can it can lead to tragedy. And we'll see what we'll see what happens uh, with the lawsuit. As I've said on the show before, Stephen, uh, Kirby did not create a culture problem. This happens naturally in college football programs, uh, but it's his responsibility to fix it. And I hope he gives us better answers publicly as to what's actually happening behind the scenes. But that's neither here nor there. OK, Stephen Lassen, you are here on behalf of Athlon Sports, to tell us who can beat this team. If I start with 11 and a half over under, and you have to put every penny you own on the Georgia Bulldogs regular season, are you taking the 12 and 0, or is it 10? And, and then give me where you would be concerned. Is it Auburn? Is it Tennessee? Where Where is the actual speed bump for the Georgia Bulldogs? Brayden, I think you and I subscribe to the same theory, which is it's always really hard to go undefeated in college football. Like the odds always say like you're probably going to lose a game and it's it's not necessarily one that we always see on paper in the preseason. Like it might just be a, a performance where 
there's three turnovers. The team, you know, the other team scores once on defense. They score on special teams. So some kind of extraordinary circumstances. Like odds always favor to me, like every team losing the game. But if you gave me 20 bucks and said, go put it on the win total, I would take the over for Georgia. Um, I'm looking at their schedule. I don't see a game that they will be favored by fewer than 10 points, um, uh, maybe other than Tennessee. That might be the only game that the spread is going to be under 10 this year. You asked about games that maybe would concern me in the regular season. I always go to road games. Like I always go to at Auburn, at Tennessee. Those kind of ones have the kind of the particular setup for the the sneaky upset loss, like we like we just talked about. Maybe it's the the South Carolina, um, you know, kind of surprising Tennessee scenario last year, where Tennessee uh, just you know, puts everything together at the end of the season, having that many games to figure things out with the quarterback situation and on defense, and they can upset uh, Georgia potentially. And I think Auburn, too, just in a rivalry game, Auburn could throw everything out there. Hugh Freeze in his first year kind of looking for that marquee win. So I would automatically go to those road games. But as we're talking, we're talking that Auburn is probably a fringe bowl team. I think Tennessee is going to be picked somewhere between 10 and 20 this preseason. Don't think Tennessee's as good as they were last season. So, you know, you're already seeing the setup that if Tennessee's not as good as they were last season and we think Georgia's potentially the number one team once again, it's it's kind of a stretch, I think, to assume going into the preseason that they will lose one of these games. They're, they're, the I think the talking point nationally is going to be, oh, this schedule's garbage. And I don't think that's true. I think it's got a lot of really good football teams on it. I think Ole Miss is going to be a really good football team. I think Kentucky is going to be a really good football team. Tennessee, Missouri, I think Auburn is going to be much improved. I think South Carolina could be a pretty good football team. I think there are a lot of eight and four football teams on this schedule. The Missouri, problem is Missouri also gave them the biggest challenge yeah. in the regular season last year before uh, the Ohio State uh, playoff matchup. No, no doubt. And so I think while Missouri, Ole Miss and South Carolina, for example, could all be tough games in Kentucky, all four of them are at home. And so to your point about the road games, it's hard to see, even though I think all four of those teams are pretty good this year, it is hard to see any of them going into Athens and winning a game. So let's just sort of and Chip kind of just talked about this. If you just sort of talk through it. There have been teams that have won championships that came back to to college football and that you and I looked at on paper and said, no, they're going to solve that problem. They're going to solve this problem. They're going to be okay here. I'm not worried about that. And it turns out we're wrong sometimes. It turns out that team cannot replicate the, the, the talent, the experience, you know, the magic, whatever it is from the year before. And you could argue new offensive coordinator totally inexperienced quarterback that, that could be challenged in a playoff situation or an SEC championship game. You could look at the secondary and say, this is how you've beaten Georgia. You go down the field and you attack them. Missouri did it. C.J. Stroud did it. Bryce Young did it the year before on the, the best defense in 40 years. Do they have as many five, like, do they have as many elite established studs on defense that they had two years ago or last year? Maybe not. Like, on paper, you can start to argue your way through. This is, like, we're just giving Georgia the benefit of the doubt on a lot of things. Yeah, I think that's true. I, I think the the counterpoint I would have to that is when I look at their schedule, I think, yes, there are some potential games where it's going to be tougher, I think, maybe than we think in the preseason. Like, what if Spencer Rattler has another game like he did against Tennessee in, in week three and, and suddenly South Carolina can challenge Georgia a little bit more? I, I think we're stretching again, but... I, I think to to your point, I think when you start looking at the schedule, it affords Georgia an opportunity 
to figure these things out. Like, you know, Carson Beck and the quarterbacks against UT Martin and Ball State, they'll be ready for South Carolina. The, the first road game isn't until September 30th <laughs> against Auburn. So th- they'll have time to figure these things out offensively and defensively. And yes, even if they maybe the defense isn't up to the standard of the last two years, even though I think it's going to be very good when you look at their uh, defensive line, linebackers and defensive backs, uh, I, from doing the national position rankings, they're probably going to be ranked number one or number two in, in all three of those. So if even if the standard is not as up to last year, the standard is still Georgia is still better than everyone else. And maybe the margin isn't 30 points a game. It's just 25 points a game. But I'll throw out one X factor. And I think that's just complacency. Like, I think it's really hard to win two in a row. It's going to be really hard to keep everyone motivated to win three in a row. So I think in terms of personnel, I worry about offensive coordinator change. We saw this at Alabama uh, going from Sarkeesian to Bill O'Brien. Bill O'Brien was fine, but not as good. Uh, What if Mike Bobo is just fine, but not as good as Todd Monken? You have the quarterback situation. What if uh, Carson Beck struggles and the other ones aren't as good? I'm not so much worried about the defense. I do think that they may miss, you know, the mixing and matching of Jalen Carter. How do they replace all that? It may take them some time to get back to that level. But one of the weaknesses of last season was the receiving core. And they went on and got Dominic Lovett, Ra-Ra Thomas, and of course, Brock Bowers is still the best tight end in college football. So all these personnel personnel things I think are pretty small. I think it's really complacency could be one of the biggest X factors for this team. Well, and and again, I don't, I don't believe any of the things I said. I'm just I'm making the case against Georgia. They will be preseason number one in my rankings. I will pick them to win the national championship, but they do not have the established stars at all the positions that they used to have. And and again, outside of as you just alluded to, the receiving core and Brock Bowers, they have more playmakers this year than ever before. So the question is like, you know, wh- where's Athlon Sports going to have them in the preseason? Just Number one, I mean, there, one. There, there's no look we right. can we, we're, like you said, we're we're stretching for these things. Like, I, I mean, we could argue like maybe I think there is an argument to be had, like what happens in the national championship game. I think we'll get into it. There's some teams in a one game scenario, but George is going to be the consensus favorite to, to yep. win it all once yep. again. All right. In the SEC, LSU and Bama are largely the front runners in the West. I think here's what's interesting. I think you and I probably are leaning Bama to win the division over LSU, but I think LSU and and there's some interesting news this week about Bama going into the portal and being interested in a quarterback, which I think is telling, but I think LSU might actually have a better chance to beat Georgia in an SEC championship game because they have the established quarterback. They've got the weapons. They've got an elite front seven that could really challenge Georgia's rushing attack slash passing game. Uh, with Perkins and Smith and the rest of those guys and the experience of being there last year. So like, I, I, I don't know if, if, if you like LSU in that matchup or if you like Bama in that matchup, any, any concern in the sec championship game. It's it's funny you say that because I think I'm kind of on that same wavelength. Like I, I think I would probably, if I'm sitting here in April trying to pick the sec West, the fact that LSU has to go to Bama in in the revenge scenario for Bama, I probably lean Alabama to win the SEC West. But in a one game scenario, LSU might have a better chance than Alabama to be Georgia. I just think they're set up better. Like I think that the the portal news for Alabama is a little telling. Like what's the confidence level in in Milrow and Ty Simpson? 
you know, I, I'd be a little bit worried after after the spring if you're trying to bring in maybe Tyler Buckner. Tyler Buckner, or, or save someone the else. day. <laughs> yeah, if you're asking for Tyler Buckner to save your, your offense, I'm not sure that gives me a ton of confidence. Yeah. And yeah. it does feel like Alabama is set up to be very much a run-first offense this year. I don't think that's the way you can beat Georgia. I think the way you can beat Georgia is with what LSU could do, whether it's Jaden Daniels, whether it's Garrett Nussmeyer pushing the ball downfield. Well, they've got the weapons. They've got you know uh, neighbors. They've got Aaron Anderson transferring in from Alabama. They've got Mason Taylor at tight end. Their offensive line is going to be much better this year. And you mentioned it, uh, playmakers on defense. Harold Perkins can cause havoc. You've got Mason Smith. You've got Makai Wingo coming back. So I think in a one-game scenario, actually, LSU would have a better chance than Alabama to beat Georgia. Here, here's Here's a layout for you. Georgia, Alabama in the SEC championship game. Georgia goes 13 and 0 is number one. Alabama loses and they are they're 11 and 2. LSU is 11 and 1 because they lost to Alabama and LSU gets into the playoff and may play Georgia in the playoff, whereas Alabama does not, but Georgia's 3 13 and 0. Now let's get to the rest of college football. I is it is it weird to start here? I'm gonna throw out two names at you. And I don't I want to I want to see your face react to these two names that I think has the best chance to beat Georgia in a one-game situation? USC and Florida State. On my list. Um, yeah, <laughs> I think, you know, I thought I was, I, I hesitated because I thought I was going to be crazy in writing down USC. And I thought, man, their defense is just too big of a liability. But sucks. The defense sucks. <laughs> it, it does. It, it, Getting Bear Alexander helps USC because now they have some interior depth. But that's that's a story for the uh, the Pac-12 fringe element episode. Relative the, relative to Georgia, the defense sucks. Yes, the thing I think that that interests you about a USC Georgia national championship or playoff game is what happened last year, and that is Ohio State one game scenario. They had all that time to prepare. C.J. Stroud and those receivers were able to move the ball on this Georgia secondary. Caleb Williams, USC's playmakers, they're loaded once again. By that point of the season, I think the offensive line for USC will figure things out. In a one-game scenario, I would not want to play all the firepower that USC has. Now, they may not be able to stop anybody, but you may also have to outscore them just because they are probably going to put up points on, on any defense in college football. So I, I, I everything you just said is why I've got them at number one on my list of teams that I think could match up with Georgia in a playoff one game situation and win. Ohio State could be there by the end of the season. They've got lots of weapons, but we don't. There's no C.J. Stroud. We'll see if, if one of those guys ends up being the guy. Michigan is really interesting, but Michigan is going to play Georgia's game. And I think we've seen that too many times. I don't we know. We saw this they... matchup two years ago in the playoff game. And, and they're better than the Michigan is better than they were, maybe, but defensively, maybe their personnel's not. So I, I just don't see them playing Georgia's game. They're virtually identical, they're, they're built identically. Um, and I just don't think that you can play Georgia's game. Um, I, the reason I say Florida State is because of all the established weaponry, just like USC. If they are 11 and 1, 12 and 1, win the ACC, they get in as a four seed or they're a three seed and they get to the title game. They've got a quarterback who is an elite deep ball thrower. They've got weapons on the outside. I don't think they're better than Georgia. I would not pick them to beat Georgia. But if you're asking me who's got the makeup to challenge Georgia in a playoff game, am I crazy for putting Florida State ahead of Clemson, you know, Alabama, Ohio, Ohio State, Michigan? 
Ohio State would be the one that gives me a little bit of pause because I do think you look at their receivers, obviously, with Marvin Harrison Jr. coming back. They have the best receiving core in college football. So if the offense clicks like it did last year with a better defense in theory at Ohio State, like this is a it's a dangerous team, I think, potentially. It, it might be more dangerous than Michigan in a one game scenario. Like I think to your point, Michigan is is better than they were two years ago when these two teams played. But I mean, on paper, Michigan is going to try and play Georgia's game, which is, I mean, Blake Corum, Donovan Edwards are going to try and run the ball. That, that doesn't like, that doesn't scare me necessarily from Georgia. What scares me is the teams that we've talked about, which is yeah. Ohio state, Florida state and USC teams with um, quarterbacks who can operate at a high level with a lot of weapons around it. And to your point, Florida state um, much deeper, I think at receiver, than they have been. They've got Jaheim Bell, a tight end transfer from South Carolina, who'll be used as sort of an all-purpose weapon. Jordan Travis, uh, one of the top five quarterbacks in college football. Also, Florida State much deeper on the offensive line and defensive line than they have been in some time. They beat LSU last year in the season opener. We'll get them again this year. So we'll know early on, I think, how just how good Florida <laughs> State is uh, with LSU. But I, I think to your point, if I'm if I'm Kirby Smart, Ohio State, USC, Florida State, probably three teams I would not want to see in the college football playoff. Doesn't mean that they'll beat them. Right, right. It just means right. they're, they're the very high in the list of teams I wouldn't want to see. Styles make fights. Uh, what about, like, I actually like some of the other Pac-12 teams potentially as well because of the same thing. And it's going to sound strange to Georgia fans and SEC fans to hear Bo Nix on this list. Washington is also another one that could sling it all over the field and challenge them. I don't think that Oregon and Washington are uh, have the rest of the, the the puzzle pieces put together to do that. I think like USC is just that much better. They're the best version of that in the, in the West coast. Utah, I think is too much like Michigan and Georgia. Yeah, I think so too. I think one thing to keep in mind with, with Washington and Oregon is I think both of these teams come into the year with question marks on defense. And we saw Georgia just absolutely dismantle Oregon last year in the season opener. I think too many questions on defense and also uh, too too many questions on the offensive line. I think to your, you're getting at with USC, Washington, Oregon, USC is a USC has, I think a higher level of what Washington and Oregon can do. I think Utah, you know, too similar of a style to what Michigan and we talked about with, with how they match up against Georgia. So it would be interesting to see Michael Penix and Washington play Georgia's defense, but I think ultimately USC is the one team out of the Pac-12 I wouldn't want to see if I'm Georgia. And I just think the shine is off Clemson. I don't think that that – I think they have a really good chance to be in the ACC championship game, but I just don't see the elite-level players at every position yet. Notre Dame, interesting, with Sam Hartman at quarterback. I'm not sure – I that, that, that one could be interesting and it belongs in this conversation potentially. But there's one team that has lots of offensive weapons that I have not mentioned yet. And you know, you know who I'm going to talk about there. They're a favorite to win their conference, probably. And they have some weaponry and they have a brilliant offensive mind running the show. What am I about to say, Stephen Lassen? I think it's a team that many people have been burned by many Uh. times in the last 10 years. And they're moving conferences next year. And they will be a big part of the fringe element next year. Your Texas Longhorns, I can't believe I'm saying this, actually have some pieces that would match up with Georgia. But that is making some major assumptions about the offensive line. Very similar to LSU, 
almost everybody back. A lot of young talent that played last year, very talented. It's making an assumption about Quinn Ewers developing. It's making an assumption about everything else. I do trust Steve Sarkeesian. Uh, but if Texas is the Big 12 champion, which is a huge if, but if Texas is the Big 12 champion, they would not be top three, four, five in my list to beat Georgia. But I do think if they were a Big 12 champion, that means all these things have hit for them, and therefore they would be a dangerous matchup in the playoff. But there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, caveats in that statement. Yeah, I think it, it, stretching like I'm holding my arms like wide yeah, yeah, open. Yeah, it's yeah. not enough. Like I, I see, I, I see what you're getting at though. Like if I'm if I'm trying to make a scenario like in a in, in a one game instance, if I'm Georgia and Steve Sarkeesian has three weeks to get ready. Quinn Ewers has taken a big step forward in his development. Keep in mind, Texas has one of the best receiving cores in college football that features A.D. Mitchell, who was a Georgia transfer. Uh, of course, you know he was hurt most of last season, but they've got weapons at receiver, tight end, inexperienced running back room, but very talented. All five starters back on the offensive line and a defense that improved last year. So I know we're stretching here, but in a one-game scenario where you have that firepower and you have the improving core around them with a coach that um, could get the most out of the roster in a one game scenario. I would be a little bit worried about that. If I was Kirby smart, if it was the first round of the playoff, this, this entire episode is a stretch. Like that's the whole point of this exercise. It, like Georgia is the best team in college football. And in a year where there's a lot of turnover at major places like Alabama and Ohio state, uh, it, you know, it's just, it's just Georgia. So the argument is the argument is, <laughs> How does this go wrong? Let's make the case. Who is it possible? And it sounds like you and I agree that the top three are USC, Ohio State, and Florida State. Is that is that your top three best? And then with LSU in the conference in a one game situation, and then nobody on their schedule. <laughs> absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Those those would be my top four if I was, you know, if Georgia could play every team in the country like in the next like three months. Those would yep. be the top yep. four that I think could yep. give them the most trouble. Yep, and um, again. We may not know how good the quarterback is or if it even matters until they play a team like LSU in the SEC championship game or Alabama until they play a USC that they may not even have to be challenged their quarter. It may not matter who their starting quarterback is until we get to the postseason and championship Saturday. Steven, uh, where can people find you find your work and uh, how about those magazines, man? Absolutely. Yeah. You can follow me on Twitter at Athlon Steven. You can check out all my work at Athlonsports.com. Mark your calendars, May 23rd. That is when the official on-sale date is for the College Football Magazine. We'll have them up early uh, on athlonsports.com and our online store as well. I love that. I love that. Um, All right. Thank you to uh, Connor Riley. Thank you to Chip Towers. And thank you, Stephen Lassen, for hanging out with us. Aaron's back next week. This has been a special Georgia edition uh, of the podcast, our Georgia State of the Union, and an argument against Georgia, I guess, that we sort of made. Maybe, maybe not. We're both picking Georgia number one to win the whole damn thing. Thank you guys all for listening. Have a great weekend. Rate, review, subscribe. For Stephen Lassen, I am Braden Gall. This has been Fringe Element here on the 440 Sports Network.